Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Hello and welcome to another WCAPS Vive uh, series podcast. My name is Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. I am the founder and executive director of WCAPS. It's my honor to bring to you another amazing woman of color. Um, her name is Ash, Ash Castleberry. And she is a, a woman who I've known for quite a while. And um, I have the honor of having her also being on my board. So I really wanted to make sure that we have an opportunity that I give all of you an opportunity to hear uh, from Asha. She could talk about some of the things that she does, how she got into the field uh, of work that she does. And she actually does quite a few different things. She could talk about that. Um, she could talk about being a part of WCAPS uh, and also her work in the military and as a professor um, and, and writing and being on TV, a lot of really amazing things. So um, I think you will very much like this podcast and very much like getting to hear about uh, an amazing woman who's in the field of national security. So with that, Asha, I'd like for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little about what you're doing right now. Great. Thank you so much for uh, having me. Uh, yes, my name is Asha Castleberry. Um, I am an academic professor. Uh, I've taught at a foreign university for two years, uh, teaching foreign policy and national security. And I'm also a army officer uh, in U.S. Army Reserves, currently the rank with, rank, with the rank of major. And so the views that I express will, the views that I will express here does not represent the United States government. Um, and I also uh, do a lot of um, TV talking about um, national security foreign policy issues. Great. So, Asha, why don't you tell us a little bit about how, why don't we start with where, you, um, um, where you're from, how you got into this field, your educational background. Why don't we start with that and then we'll, we'll go forward. Yes. So I'm so excited to share my views. Um, well, the way this started, uh, I, I would say to go back to my junior year in college. Um, during that time, I was a ROTC Reserve Officer Training Corps uh, scholarship student. So I was in a four-year program um, trying to become a commissioned officer uh, in the U.S. Army. Also, I was studying political science, mainly international relations. So during my junior year in college, I actually had the opportunity to study abroad in Shanghai, China for a month, and, well, summer. And I enjoyed my time there um, because I was able to see an economy that was pretty much changing. And I knew from that point that it's going to transform the global economy in the future. So we're talking about 2005. And I also knew that, hey, the United States needs to pay attention to this. And this is really interesting to see how this is going to impact U.S. foreign policy. But also actually having the opportunity to work with the Chinese in the ac academic setting and also be able to observe uh, the growing businesses that were located in, sh in Shanghai 
Um, I learned that as an African-American, we can get a lot of done in the global stage or in a country like China, especially when it comes to diplomacy, understand economics. So that really inspired me to uh, go into the field of national security, foreign affairs, foreign policy. So during my um, senior year, after my senior year, I was commissioned in the U.S. Army Reserves, uh, served on several missions abroad, and that even opened up or expanded my knowledge and in, in perspective about uh, foreign policy, foreign affairs. I remember my first mission we did was uh, in Nicaragua working on a peacekeeping effort um, uh, with the United Nations. And I really enjoyed my time working with 22 countries that are located in Latin America, uh, talking about how do we respond to natural disasters, humanitarian efforts, working as a multilateral effort. And then um, after that, that really inspired me to learn more about you know, the United Nations, uh, the resolution supporting women in peace and security. Uh, and then after um, I did my work in that, I ended up um, also doing election observing down in El Salvador. So that also taught me a lot about not just security issues, but also democracy. Uh, in Central America, especially after the post-Cold War era. And so that inspired me to continue my studies at New York University, at Center for Global Affairs, as well as pursue my master's degree in uh, international affairs at uh, Columbia University CEPA program. Uh, so after Columbia University, I uh, continued my, my international experiences. I spent two and a half years uh, in the Middle East working on security cooperation, which is building relationships or military relationships with uh, our allies in, um, in the Gulf region, Jordan, Iraq. Uh, and then I did that for a year. And then after that, I worked on the um, war on counterterrorism, the anti-ISIS mission uh, in Iraq and Kuwait. So um, after my amazing experiences overseas, I came home and was offered the opportunity to go into academia and have, and since then I've been really, really having a great time teaching students about uh, international affairs and how it's uh, impacting or shaping our foreign policy. So I've done that so far in three different institutions, not just foreign university, but Brew College and George Washington University graduate program. So, um, but my work doesn't stop there. Um, as a professor, um, not only I became passionate of teaching students, but I felt like I needed to grow my voice. And I saw that there we had a, um, we have a like a really bad problem with visibility for women of color in national security. So I am authorized to do media opportunities, and I look into I looked into um, actually. Um, promoting my voice uh, in international and national news. And it kind of started after I completed a fellowship with Foreign Policy Interrupted. Uh, once I completed that fellowship, I started having uh, a couple of international networks contact me, uh, starting from I-24 News to Al Jazeera to Sky News. And then that went from international news to now national news, where I've, um, I sometimes speak about uh, national security issues uh, whether it's at CBS News, I've done um, CBS, uh, Fox News, uh, MSNBC once, and uh, CNN uh, talking about Iran. So it's been amazing going into the national networks, which I really think is needed 
because we are living in a media-driven culture. <laughs> so um, that's where I am right now. Great. So did you did you have family in the military, or did, or where did your interest in the military come from? Um, first, from my my mother's brother. He was in the Air Force for twenty years. He told me to go into ROTC, and then my mother's father. He is a World War II vet. Okay, well, I'll forgive you for not going into the Navy. <laughs> I know. My, my grandfather's in the Navy. Yeah, I have All right. Yeah. All right. I had, uh, I, had, I had 21 years in the Navy Reserves. I have to say, I started out in the Air Force. I was there for like six years in the Air Force Reserve. Oh, okay. Navy Reserves. Um, so, yes, but it's, it's great to always have a fellow uh, military person to speak with. Yeah. Um, and, and academia, was there any, any family background in academia or was this uh, new for your, for your family? No, no, no background in academia. I think I've had one, one cousin who actually taught on like the elementary level, but no. But you're, you're enjoying it. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great to be, um, just, just being around young people and, and, and hearing their questions and chatting with them is very exciting. I know I'll be teaching uh, in the fall at Georgetown um, in two weeks, actually. Uh, so um, looking forward to that. I did some teaching at, uh, at law school uh, a few years back. Uh, right. But this is a new so graduate students. Now I have undergraduate students. It'll be a, a very different, a very different experience. Um, so what is, what, I mean, you've you done some amazing things. So tell me what have, um, what are some of the challenges that you think that, um, you have, you've, you've come across or maybe continue to come across. I mean, you've, no, you've noted that there's still too few women of color in the field of national security. Um, so it's great that you're, you're, you're doing a lot to, to uh, increase that presence. And one of those, one of the things that are fundamental about WCAPS is getting more women of color out there, particularly mid-career women. Uh, out there in the field, young women to get them more um, interested in the field, and of course, wanting to keep them in the field so we can have more more women of color in the future. Um, but what are some of the challenges that um, that you still feel out there in terms of being a woman of color uh, in in national security? Oh, right, there's so many. Um, well, first, <laughs> I was I would like to underscore a couple words as access, visibility and opportunities. In terms of access, um, especially coming from the college level, uh, not that many people of color um, know that, hey, there's a job out there that you're good at and it involves national security. And also when they do know about uh, these opportunities, they don't really have access to the people that can sponsor them um, into those opportunities. So, there's a lot of lack of access uh, when it comes to the um, going into the the realm, and and one reason is because the you know there's not really a pipeline, meaning like hey you know for instance if you want to become a lawyer there to me there's a pipeline you know you you go to law school you come out uh, and you apply for you know to be part of a law form form excuse me firm so it's more defined just like uh, being a doctor. But in foreign policy and security, it's not really as defined. Or only, I mean, there are a couple of programs like like me, like you know, I went through ROTC, or you have the uh, Wrangles program. Um, so you do have some, you know, a couple of existing 
um, pipeline programs that help you, but I think there needs to be more. And then also there needs the, in terms of the barriers, they're very competitive to do. So the numbers kind of like really shrink down as, as more and more people like go through the program. So you could like what I've seen in ROTC and also even programs similar to the Wrangles program, you have a lot of people that are interested, but then when it comes to actually completing the program, I mean, those, you know, the number of people or candidates that actually go through it, I mean, it, get cut, it, they cut it, it gets cut down to like 75%. So we need to kind of, in my opinion, make it a little bit easier for people to get through these type of pi uh, existing pipeline programs. And also educating them about that they exist and what is a career in national security. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 yeah, it's access, but it's also a lack of understanding or lack of knowing awareness about these, um, about a career in national security foreign policy. Um, also, when it comes to visibility, I think a lot of people don't know that this, these type of um, job, their jobs in national security or what exactly is national security, uh, because they don't really see it in, in the media. They don't really see movies about it. I mean, and then you have only a couple of examples, like yourself, Ambassador Jenkins or Condoleezza Rice or General Powell, you know, there's only very few of you. And, um, and you know, uh, so when it comes to visibility, there's a really lack of seeing people of color that are really involved in higher ranking positions that people are inspired to move forward of, hey, I want to be just like that person. Um, and also opportunity kind of goes along with going back to access. Um, I do see a lot of us when we when we do want to say, hey, we want to go into national security foreign policy, uh, the opportunities are limited at times um, because we don't know people that are in the realm or it's very competitive or you have this issue when it comes to classism. Um, if you're not necessarily from a certain school, whether it's like an Ivy League school or top tier school, especially if you want to find a job with national security in Washington, you are judged for that and you don't you have a lesser chance of securing that opportunity compared to someone who's coming from like Yale right so classism is a big issue when it comes to securing an opportunity in national security especially in DC and it's interesting because people don't, people don't focus a lot on the classism issue we do focus on the problems of people of color of course and women but it's interesting that we don't really talk a lot about that and that is a barrier um, that is certainly a barrier, and uh, I think it's felt by folks in D.C. Um, if they're not in that in that class, as you call it. Um, but we don't really talk about it a lot, and it's something else that I think we definitely need to be tackling. Um, you know, if we definitely want to have more more diversity, and more people from different backgrounds in Washington, D.C. So what, so, so um, since we know we have a lot of people who are listening to this who are, who may want to get into the field, I mean, you mentioned that there were, there's fewer uh, people who are up there and, and believe me, I take great to great pride and, and thank you for, for categorizing me with the likes of Colin Powell and But I also wonder, um, um, because I certainly felt that, you know, I mean, when I entered the field, uh, there certainly were, I mean, maybe one or two that I can point to, and I can't even wow. think of them. Um, in terms of people of color who are um, uh, as role models in particularly the field that I was in, in, in weapons of mass destruction, um, but also very few women as well. Um, so, you know, 
how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that, uh, of course, you know, role models can be anyone. They don't have to be of the same gender. They don't have to be of the same race. And obviously for me, for example, I didn't have the option, but also was able, I was also very lucky to have some really amazing role models who were white men. Um, but, but how do you, I mean, what's, what do you do when you don't have a lot of us, a lot of people or women of color how do you deal with the daily challenges, particularly in D.C., where there are so many, I think? Well, yeah, like, like you said, I'm, there's not that many of us. You know, I, um, I do get a lot of, I do get some sort of help or, or reach out to, um, you know, white men for, for advice. Or sometimes they reach out to me, um, and that kind of keeps me going. And also, I kind of have like a millennial um, perspective on how to navigate this environment. So we're kind of like radical or we're willing to take on risk or, you know, uh, we're in, our inspiration is kind of uh, different compared to the older generation where we're like, okay, we know that's a problem. Um, I'm just going to figure out my own. I'm going to be a little more independent about it. And, and that's what kind of drives me, you know? So it's, it's more like, um, you're kind of approaching it where you understand the challenges, but it's okay because your approach is going to be different from the older generation and, and just keep going. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. And that's actually a very, a very uh, wound of color perspective as well, because God knows there's enough challenges out there. Um, and as you said, you know, you have to keep, you just have to keep going. Um, you really do have to keep going. And, and in that respect, I'm, um, how do you deal with, with the imposter syndrome? Um, you know, tell me a little bit about how, how you, you know, because I, I, as I mentioned to you uh, in, in other contexts, you know, there's a lot of, um, that's, a, that's a question that comes up a lot for women of color. And not that only women of color have that issue. I think people of color have it uh, as well. Um, and other type of uh, groups that are not in the predominant culture, even though I, as I mentioned to uh, other colleagues, I have actually had a white man say that they also feel that sometimes. So it's not something that belongs to women of color. Uh, but since we seem to experience a lot more often, <laughs> I wow. think, how do you deal with that? What, what would you tell people or young women who deal with that? That is a great question. I think I'm in a unique situation of answering that question compared to my peers, especially my peers that are women of color. I don't know if you kind of went through this, but um, my military experiences have helped me get over that <laughs> because I've had a lot of um, <clears throat> a lot of help in the military to push me out there. Don't doubt your accomplishments. You're you're great, uh, and and also helped me like promote my voice despite that the way I felt deep down inside, and that helped me overcome it over time. Um, and then, you know, we don't like to compare ourselves to others, but as I became more and more acute with my perspective and understanding the international community or, or just this, this environment, I started noticing that uh, some of my, you know, male peers or white male peers, uh, I felt like I'm just as good as them, <laughs> right? So, and, and that was as a result of really becoming smarter and smarter in, in this in this field. So I said, well, I can talk, I can articulate that issue just like them. And I think that kind of like really helped me over time. So my military experiences really 
pushed me out there because I got pushed by a lot of like brass um, officers. Um, and then also, as I continue to grow my knowledge in this realm and kind of analyzing others, I, you know, I feel like I'm at times just as good as them. <laughs> so I think that's what helps me um, overcome imposter syndrome. But I, it, it pops up. It's very natural <laughs> to, you know, be, you know, the fear or to have this feeling of I'm not as good because, you know, you're outnumbered a lot in when it comes to this realm. Yes, and you are just as good, so <laughs> it's, good that you, it's good that you think that. Um, so let's say a little bit more about uh, women of color in the military. And, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of women of color in national security foreign policy. And, of course, military is part of all of that, um, not a separate thing. It's just, you know, it's, it's part of national security and, and foreign policy, um, but also different. Um, so why is it also important to have women of color in the military as well? That is a great uh, question. And I keep saying that's a great question. Um, for several reasons. One, uh, the military is like the number one employment mechanism that brings in Americans to uh, serve in national security. So, um, so that's going across the entire country. So we always we need both men and women serving especially when it comes to women women of color and when you look at the officer and enlisted percentage uh of course in in, in the enlisted core i mean enlisted um sector it's it's you know a lot less i mean more in terms of representation of women of color but we look at the officer core it's the numbers are really bad uh i would say for african-american women latinas uh asian um the numbers are not so good, uh, you know, for African-American women alone, it's 5%. And so when it comes to commanding, especially um, on a, a combatant command level, the, the opportunities are very limited for us. And we need more women to command on those levels and above to where they, you know, not only become a COCOM commander, they can end up becoming a, you know, the, the joint chief of staff, to where they're now advising the president. Um, and it just, it's really good in terms of career trajectory, going all the way up to the White House or also in the Pentagon. So we need more of that, but it's the, the, the well, as long as we have a low percentage of women of color, female representatives in the officer corps, it's gonna be harder to attain those type of, of, um, of, the, of jobs on that higher level. Because if you become a COCOM commander, especially uh, at like CENCOM or AFRICOM or PACOM, that really resonates and it could lead to better opportunities. And you could become very influential when it comes to national security. And uh, we, we really need that because def out of all the Ds, defense has, gets all the attention all, and it, it, it also sucks up most of the, the money. So we need you know, women of color behind that, you know, decision-making when it comes to defense policy. And, and what would you, I mean, you know, in both the world of civilian and military, um, you know, there's similar, there's similar challenges in terms of not just diversity, but inclusion. Um, it, from your perspective, and you can, and you can talk about this 
either from the military or the civilian side. Um, what are some of the challenges you think exist in that um, to to a, a culture of inclusion for diverse voices and um, particularly women of color, but it could be anyone of color um, or other kind of types of diversity or, or where it's not the dominant culture? Yes, there's several like <laughs> norms um, <laughs> in this realm that I just don't understand because I'm, I'm a bit, pro I'm a progressive when it comes to challenging these norms. Um, and, and, you know, as a New Yorker, I like to challenge or like bypass these norms because some of them just don't make sense. But then I try really hard to understand why and I have to also respect slow progress. But um, in, in Washington, D.C., which is the heart of, of foreign policy, national security, there's a couple of norms that kind of really prevent inclusion. And one is, I would say, institutional support for women of color. So, of course, you have like places like think tanks where um, uh, they have for many years, I, I won't call all of them out, but some of them have been for many years not really investing in um, women of color in terms of promoting their voices. And that really does hurt. And then also, there's this weird side of it too, where a lot of think tanks, they really invest in their senior fellowships and the entry level positions, but in the middle for mid-career folks, there's like really nothing there. <laughs> so you're kind of like, so when you fall in that middle, you can easily fall out of, of uh, not really getting out those opportunities from, to work at a think tank and promote your voice. So a lot of my uh, colleagues that are um, mid-career, they want to work at think tanks, but there's nothing there for them because they're not going to go to an entry-level position that doesn't pay much, and they're past that. And then they don't really qualify for senior fellowships uh, because they're not senior enough, so there's nothing in the middle. Um, now, I would say in 2019, things are getting a tiny bit better where, okay, everybody's recognizing diversity, let's help, let's promote their voices. These are people out there who are, you know, um, people of color, et cetera, et cetera, that want to get into national security. And, you know, so there's a lot of promotion of mid-career professionals, but we now have to go on the next step. Okay, what do we do with them? Uh, can we produce more opportunities? So um, some of these institutions are moving really slow or they're kind of like lip service when it comes to it. They don't really want to do anything. Um, and so you also have this issue too of a lot of people of color, they're not really uh, inspired creating their own institutions saying, listen, forget this. We won't really radically change these institutions. How about we just create our own and just do it from there and you know, we promote our work from there and, and build. So uh, we're slowly seeing that. WCAT is an excellent, <laughs> an excellent example of how so it was created by someone that's promoting voices, putting women out there, and it's really making a difference. But there's not that many examples like WCAPs, right? So, um, so that's a problem, too, as well. Um, an another issue is that kind of gets to me, too, and this is where I got to really come out of my New York perspective, because New York is really progressive, but... Um, I've noticed that Washington sometimes has this South uh, way of doing things where it's like um, they can't believe that women of color 
or people of color actually know certain issues, they're like, oh, wow, I'm so surprised, right? <laughs> and then you're like, why, why would you be surprised? I, I'm in the military. Wouldn't that make sense to you that I understand the, let's say, Kashmir conflict between India and Pakistan? You know, it's just like those kind of things are, to me, are slow and backwards. And I think we need to get past that, that, you know, of having low expectations of people and once we're past that, that will help include more people in some of these conversations. So low expectations to me really exist. And, and, um, and that doesn't, and that really hurts uh, the idea of including more people in part of the, you know, decision making the policy process. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And, and, and you know, I, and I know that in my field, you know, the hard security field that I work in and, and weapons of mass destruction, you know, it's still, it, it, that definitely is true. And, you know, it's still so predominantly um, non-diverse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel, um, I feel a little hope because there's, there's increasingly, at least, you know, through, through WCAPs, I've been able to, see more young women of color who are interested at least if not directly in the field but issues that are related to the field um and so if they're not in it they can become more interested in a policy side like scientists who may think you know well, maybe maybe i'll use my science for policy right. you know and, or policy work um so you know i feel encouraged by that but you know, ultimately, what is important is that they stay in it and that they stay, they want to keep doing it and that they feel comfortable um, because we don't want to lose people in the pipeline. And, you know, I think that that, that happens too often, um, particularly in Washington. Can I uh, add one more point, too? Yeah, please, please. Another issue, too, is that, so the way, I, the way it kind of looks to me how this, national security realm works is that a lot of people start off as like sub experts where they have their own little fields where, okay, I'm an expert on, on development in Africa. I'm an expert on cybersecurity orchestrated by Russia, you know, and they start off on a, on a smaller, smaller issues. And then they grow into becoming generalists meaning like, okay, I'm gonna look at the whole thing and this is what I see as far as a strategy moving forward like what are some of the things that we need to focus on that need to be included in our national security strategy our national defense strategy what is our policy our foreign policy 20 years after the trump era so going to that level i see that um not a lot of us are given the opportunity to craft that or, or develop those type of policies um, and um, it, it's kind of frustrating too because I see that um, for others, there's a lot of push for people to think on that level uh, to go, okay, you're past the sub expertise, um, you know, uh, time. Now it's time for you to think like generalists. Okay, what, how do you, uh, we, we're going to go to you for so many issues. Like, what is, how do you feel about nuclear nonproliferation worldwide? How do you feel about arms control trade? How do you feel about climate change? And I'm not saying you have to be well-versed on all those issues, but have some sort of, so, sort of like minimum analytical understanding on each issue. And this is where we should go with our US foreign policy. And what of our, what's our overall principles 
in national security. So I see where a lot of uh, more of my, I'm going to be honest, more of my white colleagues are being more groomed for stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, and, and I think for people of color, we're, we're not really given the opportunity to think on that level. But at the same time, we don't even know it's time for us to think on that level throughout our careers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and, and just to, just to um, move a little bit uh, on a, a little bit of a different uh, topic, but obviously all related is, uh, you've talked a lot about, um, and, you know, some of the media that you've been able to do, which is great, and um, getting people out in front of the camera is certainly something that, um, you know, to give visibility, you know, uh, to the fact that we do have women of color in these areas. So, I mean, what role do you think the media plays in advancing the narrative that there are women of color that work in the area of peace and security? And what more could they be doing? Oh, great. Um, you might have to shut me down because I'll talk about this for years. <laughs> um, well, first, I would say this is a, again, I said this earlier, this is a media-driven society. So media is in my opinion more influential um to uh to the american people than reading right (laughs) it's probably more influential than our own government so it's very important that uh what what is being what what is actually displayed in in the media um is telling the truth but also what's being displayed in the media is very influential so when you look at look at it right now going across um and when it comes to foreign policy national security when you need people to talk about it uh it, for many years it has not been diverse and uh you know they tend to go to older white males to talk about oh what's what are we gonna what's gonna happen with this issue or that issue usually they follow the president's agenda because at the end of the day the president of the united states he he or she plays a big part in foreign policy national security that is that is in the Constitution, right? So they do a lot of things, whether it's at the White House or they're getting on the Air Force One to to conduct foreign policy. So the media is always talking about foreign policy, but then again, the, the people that are there to commentate about foreign policy, it's, it tends not to be diverse. Now, here's the shocker. Um, we would think, well, the, li- the liberal, um, um, the liberal media outlets tend to have more people of color talking about foreign policy than than the, I would say the conservative ones. No, not exactly. Um, I have been probably received more requests from the conservative outlets than the liberal ones, right? But it's just a matter of also, at the end of the day, these outlets know who we are. And that's a big problem too. They don't know that women of color or people of color exist in terms of that they can actually talk about uh, foreign policy and national security issues on, uh, on TV. So. Um, sometimes it's not necessarily, oh, they just don't want people of color. They just don't know that we exist. And also goes back to that think tank example where that this world, they actually, the media outlets are always looking for people, but they have a habit of just going to think tanks, right? And if you have think tanks that don't really have diverse experts, well, they're going to just keep feeding them, you know, uh, a lack of diverse candidates to talk about national security issues. So that's why think tanks are so important in this uh, when it comes to media because they really do reach out to them and then, you know, think tanks are feeding them, you know, your average regular Joe. So, um, 
So that's a problem too. Now, being able to talk on TV about national security, I have inspired younger women to want to go into it. And that's why I know it's so important and it's important. It's really means a lot to me that I build on my visibility because I know that women like me that look like me, they, they are inspired to do the same thing. So uh, we just need more, you know, involvement in, 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 in media to talk about national security. Um, but there's just, again, these little sub norms that can get in the way with it, but not all of them are, are necessarily bad. It's just like a, they just, and I noticed that the big problem is they don't know who we are. Uh, and also we don't have institutions really promoting to them. Hey, this is so-and-so get them on your, your channel to talk about this issue. Yeah, it's uh, it's really important to have those those channels, I guess one way to call them, those those intermediaries, um, until they until um, these media outlets do really know who's out there, ones that they are connected to, the organizations, uh, whatever they're connected to, can push the fact that the that we do exist, um, you know. And I always question about you know people. They don't know who's out there and they don't know there's people out there. I mean, sometimes I think they're just not trying hard enough mm -hmm. um, to look. Um, but it is something we hear about, and that's something that I know we're trying at WCAP to do. And I know there's other organizations that also um, are out there. But, you know, there are definitely, you know, for those who are listening, there is a lot of women of color who have a lot of expertise on peace, security, and conflict issues, including national security. It's just a matter of finding out who they are. And there are, uh, there are uh, places to help find that. And, and that's something that uh, our organization is trying to do a lot of. Um, so I guess as we know, as you know, as we head toward the end, I think, um, you know, you've done a lot of amazing things. And so you are a role model um, to a lot of younger women. And, you know, what are, the, what are the three pieces of advice? And you teach, so you, you are, I'm sure, always in a position where you're, giving advice and I'm sure people, young people always run to you and asking for advice and getting into the field of national security. Um, what, what, are you, what are your three most important pieces of advice you think that you have for, uh, for young women who want to do some of the things in national security, some of the areas, follow some of the areas and get involved? Well, one thing, like join an amazing organization like WCAPS <laughs> makes your life so much easier. I've, um, I know WCAPS members that have uh, told me if this organization never existed, I would have probably left this industry or realm. And, 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 I, and I told them why. And they says because it provides so much support in our work so much sponsorship, mentorship, uh, you know, brings in um, some peer interactions. It also, you know, educates young women about um, opportunities out there for their careers. I mean, there's so many different things you can get out of WCAP. So this is really amazing. Um, two, I would say, if you now there's there's two different things that I provide as far as like advice when it comes to national security, if, if you're gonna go into government or you're gonna be outside of government. Now government, I really um, recommend those that wanna go and work in government, definitely consider doing ROTC. Uh, also look into doing, you know, 
you know, uh, um, applying for those pipeline organizations like the Rango Fellowship, uh, you know, the Payne Fellowship that can help you get into government. Um, and then while you're, once you get in, you know, definitely find those older people or mentors that can help you navigate the system because it's not easy. So, um, you know, that's, that's for the government folks. For the non-government folks who kind of like want to go in academia or work for NGOs or want to do journalism um, or work at think tanks, that's different. Now, I would say definitely put yourself out there, you know, do a lot of publishing, uh, meet a lot of people so they know who you are and not only know who you are, but they know your brand. But also look into doing work abroad. I think that is the best thing you can do is to learn about the international system by doing some sort of work abroad, whether, whether it's through Peace Corps, uh, doing a special mission with an NGO, um, you know, or, doing, or working with an international organization. I think those opportunities are really good. It makes you sharper in your analysis. And then you will also see how what we what we think and do in the United States can sometimes be a little off compared to what you saw in person during those missions, right? So it's really important to build on your international experiences, and that really helped me along the way. Um, um, but also, again, going back to promoting your your brand, it's very important that you're known as far as what you're trying to do, what what is your expertise. And, and I do see at times that the younger folks have a hard time figuring out what is my expertise, I don't know. It was easier for me to narrow it down because um, I serve in the military, so I so in, in foreign policy and national security, my sub-expertise is really defense policy. Uh, so, you know, if you ask me about what should we do in Iraq and Afghanistan, I, I'm most likely gonna have a, a you know, uh, eloquent response because I'm always reading and learning about the issue and I've experienced it in person. Um, but finding your, your expertise, your edge is really important starting off and it's going to take some time. It's not easy. It took me about three years to figure out, okay, I found it. it's defense, <laughs> right? But I was lucky enough to be in a system that allowed me to say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm really into defense policy. Uh, for those that are not really in a system that's grooming them to become an expert, you got to really work harder to figure what that is. But Again, look into opportunities to help groom you. So, and that will help you uh, accelerate as far as identifying what is your expertise. Great. That's wonderful advice, Asha. Um, I, I can tell you you're professors. Yeah. <laughs> very good at, at articulating um, very good advice for, for, for our next generation, which is I'm extremely appreciated. Um, so, Thanks for doing this. I mean, this has been amazing, an amazing uh, discussion, uh, as I knew it would be. Um, and before we, before we um, sign off, I, I always uh, uh, give the, the, the interviewees an opportunity to uh, you know, have, a, have a last say. It could be you know, something that you want to reinforce or uh, something that you didn't get a chance to say. Or you don't have to say anything if you, if you, if you feel you said all you need to say. But um, any, any last thoughts on this issue of women of color and peace and security and the important role that, that, and role, role that we, we should be playing more of in terms of policy development and policy implementation 
Um, just one, one last opportunity if you have anything you wanted to add. Yes. Um, as a woman of color, um, make sure that you are, don't get too comfortable with just one issue. You know, if, you're, if your focus is just development, that's fine. But over time, learn about how diplomacy works. Learn about how defense works in terms of policymaking. We can get into a point where we get too comfortable with one, um, with one set of, 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 of um, sector and not really, and we kind of resist of opening up to other ways of looking at foreign policy and national security. Um, you want to eventually have a good, uh, like a really like understanding of, of how each one works. And look, I'm, I'm, th I'm that way too. I'm a defense person. So I sometimes have to take out the time to learn about development. So become more versed about how all these foreign policy tools work. And I think that's going to really set you up for success in the future. Thanks, Asha. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to another, uh, I think, a wonderful um, podcast, wonderful because of my, uh, the great guests who we have to, who are doing this. And um, I want to say stay tuned. We'll be having another one very soon. Um, and also, if you're not a member of WCAPS, please check us out, WCAPS.org, um, and learn more about the work that we're doing and become a member. And thanks again, Asha. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things WCAPS, visit us at WCAPS.org or join us at an event in a city near you. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WCAPSnet. Until next time, speak up, speak out, get engaged.